please remain standing and turn with me, if you will, to Ecclesiastes, starting a new series, a study through this uh, book. We're going to read the first 11 verses, and if you're using one of the church's Bibles, you'll find that on page 553. Ecclesiastes is a wisdom book. It's right there with uh, the poetry and wisdom, so uh, right there with Psalms and Proverbs and uh, Song of Solomon, you'll find it. congregation of Jesus Christ. This is his word. Please give your attention to the reading of it. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind and on its circuit the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, See, this is new? It has already been in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. The grass withers and the flower fades, but God's word is eternal. Let us pray that he would be pleased uh, to speak to us through it. Heavenly Father, our eternal God, you have told us that all flesh is like grass. It is a breath and then it is gone. And yet in our hands we hold something eternal, something that was around long before us and will be around long after us. Your word abides forever. Grant that we would give our undivided attention to it, that we would be receptive to all that it says, and that our beliefs, our understanding, and our expectations would all be brought into accord with your word. We ask this all in the name of your Son, who is the word made flesh. Amen. You may be seated. Well, Ecclesiastes is a difficult, controversial, and confusing book, and so it seemed like it would be fun to study together. It uh, simultaneously scares people, And comforts them. It has the raw honesty of the Psalms. It avoids platitudes and simple answers. And that's refreshing. It says it is written by the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Obviously a reference to Solomon. Uh, He calls himself the preacher though, or 
maybe better translated or could easily be translated gatherer because he's speaking to the church, the congregation, the assembly. In other words, this book is meant to be pastoral. It is meant for God's people to meet them where they are and address their lives. It's a sort of of end-of-life reflection. Solomon's reflections on life uh, as an old man, it might be. And I love old people. Uh, No offense to some that might think I'm talking about you here. Uh, But they often get to this point where they don't dance around issues anymore. Yeah, they just say what they're feeling. Uh, They don't see the point in playing games. They've lived life, they see things clearly, and they call it like they see it. Now, there are some who go too far and just seem to complain about everything. But more often, you get this perspective and honesty that is as helpful as it is refreshing. They admit their errors. They don't whitewash the choices they made. They just look you in the eye and they say, life is short, don't make the same mistakes I've made. That's Ecclesiastes. Solomon's end-of-life reflections. And he's uniquely qualified to make them. He had power and he had riches, the likes of which we could only dream of. He ruled in a time of unparalleled prosperity and peace and power in Israel. By all accounts, he should have had the perfect life. Perfect contentment, fulfillment, no regrets. But as one who experienced what most people long for, He's able to tell us what life is like when you have, quote, arrived. And it's this. You never arrive. Not in this life. The surprising part about all of this is that he learns to take solace and comfort in that reality. Rather than leading to despair, it's a comfort And really, in a sense, the problem most people experience that he dealt with and came to understand wasn't reality. The problem were false expectations that can never be met. And that's really what our passage today introduces. That if you think you can achieve immortality and lasting change through your hard work, you will be disappointed. If you think you can attain, achieve immortality and lasting change through your own hard work, you will be disappointed. Really, we want to look at three things. First, we want to or ask three questions. First, we want to ask what expectations we all have that are simply unrealistic and can only lead to frustration. We all have them. Let's just get them on the table. 
Then we want to ask what lessons God wants us to learn from nature, specifically the sun, the winds, and the rivers or the streams. And then finally we want to ask, is there a king in Jerusalem who can not only ask life's hard questions, but bring heaven's answers? That's where we want to go today. Those are the questions we want to ask So let's start with that first one. What expectations do we all have that are simply unrealistic and can only lead to frustration? There are a few words in Ecclesiastes that can be difficult to translate, and unfortunately, one of those difficult words is the most common and repeated word in Ecclesiastes. It's that word translated right there in verse 2, vanity. It's an interesting word, really. In the Old Testament, it shows up both as a word but also as a name. It is the name translated in Genesis 4 as Abel. Uh, You know, the brother that Cain killed. Remember him? Same word. Exactly. It could be Abel of Abel's. All is Abel. (laughs) It's kind of interesting, isn't it? But as is often the case, names uh, in the Old Testament usually have meaning. They're words. They're appropriate for the individual. Abel's name meant vapor or breath. In fact, if you uh, look in your footnote, you probably have a footnote that says this word really means vapor or breath. Like we see in Psalm 39.5, Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Remember that? Same word. In fact, uh, That's really what we have to wrestle with. The trouble isn't really translating the word, but in understanding the point. Because literally, verse 2 says this, The merest of breaths, says the preacher, the merest of breaths, everything is a breath. Translators read that and they think, what does that mean? And so for centuries... They've tried to suggest other words in an attempt to tell you what it means. And the most common among those words are things like vanity or futility or even meaningless. The problem is that none of those are actually what the word means, nor can any of them do justice to all the different ways Solomon uses that word throughout Ecclesiastes. In chapter 8, he says, the wicked die and are forgotten. Surely, that's not vanity or futility. That's a good thing, that the wicked die and are forgotten. More importantly, the whole message of Ecclesiastes is anything but that all is meaningless. He commends enjoying life and finding joy while there's still time. In other books, when our life is compared with a breath, the meaning is clear. Our life is short. And that is really what Ecclesiastes is wrestling with, the frailty, the shortness of life. And this gets at one of man's most... uh, one of his greatest quests... The quest for immortality. There is an innate sense within us that we are made for something more, something enduring, something eternal. In other words, we all want to live forever. 
And there are those who want to do that literally, and they seek some way to beat death. But life is fleeting. People are born, they live for a few decades, and then they die. That's a universal reality. Nobody beats it. In the grand scheme of things, our lives are a blip on in history. Life truly is short. We are but a breath. It's funny. The longer you live, the shorter it seems. When you're young, life seems like it, it's just going to go on forever. Talk to somebody in their 90s and they think, where did it all go? Most people know this. They know they can't live forever, but, but as verse 11 says, they don't want to be forgotten. And so they seek immortality through a, a legacy, through doing something that will cause them to be remembered long after they die. This is the quest to do something new. They think that if they do something new, something truly unique, something world-changing, that they will not be forgotten. That they will live on in the memories of others. That history books will, will guard them from disappearing from men's memory. So they look for something amazing to do. And they put all of their effort into it. I'm probably going to offend a ton of people but why should today be any different? Men, how do we tend to do this? We do it with our jobs, don't we? Thinking that if we can do them really well, we'll accomplish something amazing and never be forgotten. This is why husbands tend to be workaholics. They make idols out of their careers, really in a quest for immortality through a legacy. To prove their relevance and their value. And yet, what happens? As men enter their 50s, they realize that they have not changed the world, and they are not going to, and that they are not irreplaceable. That before long, they're going to be given a nice dinner, a cheap gift... And then on Monday, everyone else is going to show back up for work like they were never there. They're going to be replaced by someone younger. Their work will get done. And they won't be missed. And that unmet expectation can lead to despair. It's so easy for women to do this with family and children. To think that if they work really hard, they can do what no one else has ever done. Have the perfect family. That might be an exaggeration, but, but there can be such a thin line between wanting to be a good parent and, and, and an idolatrous desire to be the best. And so you sacrifice everything. You go without sleep. You pour your life into your children. And then one day they tell you you're no longer needed. Or worse, they blame you for everything. And then they move out, but, but mom doesn't get the dinner and the cheap gift. She might not even get a thank you. 
And again, those unmet expectations can lead to despair. This is what verses 3 and 10 are about. The, the word gain means surplus, something above and beyond. It's the hope that at some point we're going to achieve something new and amazing, that we're going to get past mere survival and we'll have arrived. And yet life is like a treadmill. We're always moving, never arriving. Chappy, I was going to say at first, Sunday school, it's always winter, it's never Christmas. Things never really change, not really. There's nothing we do that hasn't been done before. Sure, inventions are made that are different, but they're just like the inventions of a previous generation, heralded one day, forgotten the next. Sure, we we make new peace treaties that are broken tomorrow. The more things change, the more they're the same. It's not that we're afraid to work hard. God's told us to do so, and we're willing. The problem is that we expect something in return for it. We think that if we work hard enough, we'll achieve satisfaction. And that's that's that third uh, subtle expectation, that quest for, for satisfaction and meaning. We, we think that if we work really hard, we're going to be fulfilled, that life will have meaning. And that's really what our passage is about, that quest for meaning. For humans, meaning is essential. And we use different words, purpose, Uh, satisfaction, contentment, fulfillment. But the reality is we are not content to simply exist. There must be a reason for our existence. Our short lives must be validated by something bigger. And since we're doers, we mistakenly look for meaning in what we do. We think that if we can just work hard enough, we will validate ourselves and justify our existence. These are our unspoken assumptions, and they form our expectations. And they are expectations that can never be met. Life is short, we're never never going to arrive. And when we die, we're going to be forgotten. And false expectations are the road to despair. They set you up for for inevitable failure. And yet unrealistic expectations are the bread and butter of modern society, which says you can do anything and be anything you set your mind to. And so in an age where everyone believes they're exceptional, Depression and anxiety are at an all-time high. And the only remedy is to fix those expectations, those assumptions, to have a realistic view of life and the world, and to learn where meaning is truly found. And to help us do this, Solomon draws our eyes to three things in nature in verses 5 through 7. The sun, he says, rises and goes down, and then it rushes 
to get ready to rise again the next morning. Talk about a treadmill. The sun has been doing this since the beginning. For thousands of years, every day, without fail, and never arriving anywhere. And the winds are no different. They make their way around the earth. They come, they go, they return, they clear the smoke, they bring the clouds. But they never get tired of doing the same thing. And the streams? Look at verse 7. They flow continually into the sea and yet it never fills up. What if any of these questioned their value, their role, because of their never-ending repetition? What if they gave into despair because tomorrow they simply are going to have to do the same thing they did today? What if the sun refused to rise tomorrow because that's what it did yesterday and that's just what we're going to want the next day? What if the winds refused to blow because they're on a global treadmill that never ends? What if the streams decided that since they can never fill the ocean, there's no point in flowing? Any one of those would be death for us. We could not live without the sun, the winds, or the streams. Their repetition doesn't undermine their value. Their value is in their faithful repetition. If you think repetition renders something meaningless, that it only has value if it changes something, then none of these can justify their existence. It's as simple as this. If you start with the wrong assumptions, the results will be devastating. And so he says, learn this lesson from nature. I'd like to suggest there's a second lesson from nature, albeit a little bit more subtle. The reason that Solomon can use these examples 3,000 years ago, and they still are meaningful to us today, is because of their longevity. Think about the sun. It has been around since the beginning, the fourth day. When you look up at the sun, don't look too long, it's the exact same sun that Adam and Eve gazed at when they were created. If creation should last another 10,000 years, they will still be looking at the same sun. Compared to us, the sun, the winds, and the streams are ancient. And I think these are images from nature that are helpful because they underscore just how short our lives are. They give us perspective so that we might not think more highly of ourselves than we ought. They force us to see our lives in perspective and realize that they're a mere breath. These make us face our own mortality. And facing our own mortality forces us to face life's most pressing questions. The final lesson that nature teaches us 
is drawn out in verses 7 through 10. It addresses the quest to do something new. Again, that means something uh, world-changing that lasts and is meaningful. To truly change the world means to, to do something that brings a sense of rest, that the work is done and will never, ever have to be repeated. When verses 9 and 10 say that everything that is done has been done before and everything that is being done will be done again, it's not talking about uh, little specifics. What it means is, is that there are parallels in every generation and there will continue to be. Inventions will continue to become obsolete and need to be replaced. Peace treaties will continue to be, re, uh, to be broken and need to be remade. Nothing people do so radically alters reality that they don't need to be done again in some way or other. That's driven home through that image of the streams in verse 7. They flow into the ocean but can never say, the ocean's full, our job is done, we can retire. Their work can never produce a change so radical that the order of reality has shifted. That's not the point of their existence. They sustain life by bringing water to plants and animals and people. Their calling is not to fill the ocean. And if they miss their calling, they'll miss their purpose and their value. In fact, in the scriptures, there is only one who can bring about a change on that scale. There is only one who can truly do something new. The Bible talks, when it uses the word new, it it talks about new songs and new covenants. It talks about a new heart and a new spirit. And ultimately, all of those are part of how it talks about the new heavens and the new earth, the new creation. New in the Bible is about a radical and permanent change in the order of things. And do you remember what Jesus said at the end of Revelation? It wasn't that long ago we studied that. He says, Behold, I am making all things new. When he's done, when he's done this, life will no longer be a mere breath. All things will be new. Meaning and satisfaction will be perfectly understood and experienced. Now, if Jesus is the one to accomplish the great desire of Ecclesiastes that it addresses, should it surprise us that that one day he would be described in the same way Solomon is described in our passage? The one who makes all things new entered into our temporary, repetitive, and laborious world, and what was he called? The son of David. He was given a throne, he came to Jerusalem. He even said that one greater than Solomon is among you. (laughs) He compared himself to Solomon. And that means he he doesn't just talk 
about the deepest longings and then say, oh, we cannot meet these. We cannot do something truly new. He is the one who can do something truly new. He is the one that can bring a change to reality so complete that nothing will ever be the same again. He can do what we all long for but cannot do on our own. But there's a twist. Such a new reality, the new creation, which is another word for heaven, we are told in the Bible belongs only to those who are perfect, who are righteous, who are without sin. You see, in the Bible, what is new isn't just about being complete, reaching a stage of finality. It's, it's not simply a matter of time. That If, if you wait long enough, it, it will inevitably happen. It's about what is perfect and good and pure. Nothing unclean can enter in. That's what Revelation 21 says. Shortly after Jesus says, I'm making all things new, he then says, and nothing unclean can enter into that new reality. And so if Jesus wants to share this new reality with us, he will first have to deal with the reality of our sin. He'll first need to wash away our impurity and make us new. And to do that, to do that, he would have to enter into our frustrating and temporary and repetitive reality. Think about the implications of the incarnation, the fact that the eternal God became man. The God who knows no beginning and no end, who makes the ancient sun look like a passing breath. This immortal God took on mortality. And he did not take on long life. He was not the new Methuselah. He didn't live 960 whatever years. He didn't even live into his 90s or his 80s or his 70s. I could keep going. But you know the story. Like Abel, he was struck down in the prime of life. His time on earth was the merest of breaths. Psalm 8 even says, For a little while he was made lower than the angels emphasizing the shortness of his life. And yet during that short life, he was subjected to all the frustrations of our world, our weakness, our shortness of life, our our frustrating repetitions. Those things which done today will just need to be repeated tomorrow. So what did he accomplish through that? And when he died and he rose again, he ushered in a new reality that he will one day bring to completion. And what that means is that you don't need to be the source of your own immortality. It means that you don't need to be the one to bring about the new reality. More importantly, 
you don't need to believe that until you do, your life has no meaning. And that frees you up to look at your short life and the repetitive aspects of it with a renewed perspective. Like the sun and the wind and the streams, value can be found in repetition, not in conquering it. When repetition is no longer something you have to overcome, you can be freed to embrace and even enjoy it. Ecclesiastes is going to take us on a journey. This is really uh, just the introduction, setting us up. The meat starts in verse 12. But it's going to take us on a journey from frustration with the temporary and repetitive nature of life to an acceptance of it, and then finally to joy in it. That message is needed now as much as ever. In many ways, our current context is is a lot like Solomon's. As we acknowledged earlier, we, we live in a time of unprecedented peace and economic prosperity. And yet despair and anxiety are at an all-time high. It's because we expected certain things when that was achieved and those expectations have been unmet. The problem is the expectations themselves. Because they're wrong and so they can never be met. They're always going to lead to despair. What we need is to bring our expectations into alignment with God's. And that means accepting and even embracing that our lives are short and repetitive. That God calls us to work hard without the expectation that we will somehow bring about the new creation through those labors. But the surprising and even more encouraging message of Ecclesiastes is that God invites us to find joy in the things of this life. One of the most obvious examples is food. Eating food is something you have to do every day. You will never reach the point where you're like, well, I've had enough meals for this life. I can be done now. It must be repeated over and over or you will die. And yet food is also one of the greatest pleasures we have in this life. That's why it's a part of our big events, weddings, parties, family get-togethers, holidays, revolve around food because even though it's repetitive, we find joy in it. Ecclesiastes will tell us, eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. Is it any surprise then that when the, we gather to hear the words of the preacher that God invites us to eat bread and drink wine? He set before us in the Lord's Supper a reminder of all we've heard today. As 
pictures of Jesus' body and blood given in death on the cross, they are reminders to us that he is the one who makes all things new and that he did this by living a short life for our sakes. As a repeated meal, it reminds us to make our peace with and even embrace and enjoy what we repeat in life as having meaning because they come from God. And so God invites his children to come with joy and gratitude and partake of the blessings that he has prepared for them and to confess that in him we have all we need. And so I'd like to ask the elders to come forward as we receive this meal this morning. Our gracious God, we confess that we often grow frustrated in this life We seek after immortality, we grow bored with repetition, and we want to be known for changing the world. We set up false expectations, monuments to our egos, and then we grow despondent when our expectations are never met. Forgive us our pride, but more than this, help us to see as you see, to align our expectations with your own. And we ask that you would teach us to delight in the blessings of this life, to number our days and remember that they are short, and to find joy in all that you have blessed us with. Bless our time in this book of Ecclesiastes. Help us to see your treasures within it. And may we always look to your King in the heavenly Jerusalem, the greater Son of David, who is making all things new. Amen.